0: Welcome to Teneo Insights, a podcast that provides in-depth analysis on the issues that matter most to CEOs and their businesses. I'm your host, Kevin Kajiwara, co-president of Teneo's political risk advisory business. Let's get started. Good day, everyone. I'm Kevin Kajiwara in New York City. And thank you for joining today's premiere edition of the fifth season of Teneo Insights. Our 101st guest is Andrew Liveris, for 14 years, from 2004 to 2018, he was chairman and CEO of Dow. After 47 years with the company, though, retirement is not in his vocabulary. He's kept extremely busy ever since. Today, Andrew is on the boards of IBM, Worley, and Aramco. He is the chairman of the electric vehicle company, Lucid Motors. He's a senior advisor to the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, as well as to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He is the founder and benefactor of the Andrew N. Liveris Academy for Innovation and Leadership at the University of Queensland, his alma mater. He is also the president of the Brisbane 2032 Olympic and Paralympic Games Organizing Committee. He's been an advisor to the last three presidents of the United States and is a senior advisor to Teneo. And now he's also a two-time author with the publication of his second book, Leading Through Disruption, A Changemaker's Guide to 21st Century Leadership. And I'm happy to have him on the program for the first time. Andrew welcome and uh, thank you for being here with me today and and congratulations on the uh, on the book Um, we're hearing a lot about it so I guess maybe let's start with that then you know and tell me a little bit about the genesis of the book. Obviously after your long career at Dow you could have been forgiven for just writing a memoir quite frankly but frankly this is much more forward looking with some pretty key takeaways in there for for leaders today so talk a little bit about why you took the approach that you did.
1: Yeah, thank you, Kevin, and thank you for having me. I, I think the um, period of time that I was CEO, leading to the COVID pandemic, post my CEOdom, uh, using the COVID period of time, to reflect on a lot of things, as I guess we all did. Yeah. Um, I would say to you that it distilled the essence of what actually became the book, which is rather than write a memoir, or uh, I mean, I had a lot of personal stories, my own personal story, uh, which I weave in there, but. Uh, I thought a lot about uh, this academy I was creating at the University of Queensland, my alma mater, and the exposure I'd had to 21-year-olds and how they were relatively lost in terms of what to do next. I also thought about the time I spent at COP26 in Glasgow and how there was a whole youth movement, Greta Thunberg uh, leading it, of course, and, and many like her saying, generationally, what you guys, gals, have done is not set us up for success. You've set us up for you know, less than success, maybe failure. And so I thought about that and I said, you know what, they're not wrong, but they're not right either. And then how do I take all the experiences I had as CEO where I had lots of frustrations of the same type and then put them into a sort of, I'm not gonna use the word manual because you could say that about the book, but it's a lot more than that as you've already noted really parlaying the experiences forward. In other words, think through the big topics of our day, the collision of all these tectonic forces, the lack of, maybe not easy answers, but the lack of any sort of solutions. And maybe I can begin using my experiences to lay out some sort of roadmap for considered bodies of people, businesses, governments, academia, to start to debate and think through where we might be going frankly as a species on this planet and so the big picture going down to specific pragmatic examples is the way I sort of approached it and you know when I tested the thesis with the publisher uh, they said look there's not many books out there like that so yeah uh, and then the word disruption came to mind that you know frankly what I really am articulating is a disruptive era and that a new normal is approaching and that normal is an abnormal. And the constancy of abnormal conditions has led to this now cry for some
0: better path forward. So let's unpack that a little bit, yeah. because as you point out, the the title of the book is Leading Through Disruption. And quite frankly, as long as I've known you since you were at Dow and, mm-hmm. and, and since then, I, I've, I've always thought of you as somebody who's embraced disruption, actually. And, right maybe even been a disruptor yourself. And I don't mean that in any sort of reckless, like running into, into enemy oncoming fire in any way, right. but rather a let's not let a crisis go to waste and let's not misinterpret an inflection point kind of a way. So with that as the background, you know, set the table, set the table for us a little bit on, on where you kind of see the world going and what that means for the corporate operating environment writ large. Corporate operating environment writ large Uh, As I said at the
1: beginning of my journey as CEO, I benchmarked successful CEOs and ones that had just retired and ones that have been in their job a long time and I took down lots of notes and through my 14 and a half years as CEO, I I referred to those notes and I noticed increasingly how redundant and how non-applicable they were and what I was noticing was that actually the rule book hadn't been written and where I needed to go to find answers, was nowhere obvious institutions that we had set up last century were not working very well politics were going was going to extreme positions policy was absent from politics business was absent from policy the advocacy groups business round table business council were pretty much vertical silos they weren't really very inclusive of society society were and communities where dow operates in 150 communities around the world, engaging those communities. Yes, as a company we were doing it, but they were asking us, well, tell us, you know, what, you know what's the future of our jobs with digital and AI? Tell us, you know, uh, about pollution and climate change and CO2 and all these topics were sort of unattended for. And basically what I, I felt was that the institution that we call business um, suddenly had to be recast and redefined such that it continually earned its license to operate. Uh, In essence, what we may have forgotten is society gives us that license to operate. Society relies on governments to set the rules. If government is ineffective in setting the rules, then where are the rules coming from, especially in these major fissures that are occurring, like digital, like environmental, like social, like geopolitical, bringing together all those topics into set the table, for the menu of policies was a complicated thing and yet everyone out there was basically speaking their book. Nobody was speaking for basically everyone's book. And so what I said was that um, at Dow we would change the way uh, we would do things. We would be inclusive of all audiences. We began the movement basically that is now called stakeholder capitalism. That inclusive capitalism meant all groups, opinions and inputs would be considered and then weighed against the ability to operate long term, not just short term. So in essence this overwhelming notion that the only enterprise out there left that was thinking long term was the corporate institution. And yet the corporate institution, not all of us, was were responsive. We were operating to 90 day paradigms based on our financial owner wanting a financial outcome every 90 days. Short-termism and CEOs and boards were starting to now affect livelihoods, affect ability to invest in R&D, affect capital growth programs. And so we had to change the menu of policies to get back to long-termism.
0: So you you say that the, the one institution that's thinking long-term is the corporate entity, but is that that is versus a western democratic government right with the two-year congressional election cycle or the the election revolving doors we've seen in parliamentary democracies and the like but China is thinking 10, 25, 50, 100 year um, and other regimes such as you know where you work do a lot of work in Saudi Arabia thinking generationally in terms of where they're going to go in a post kind of hydrocarbon intensive world or what have you so when you think about other markets, though, um, is that balance between corporate and government in terms of how long-term they are thinking and therefore how aligned they are, is that that's very different, I assume. So, so both countries you use, China and
1: Saudi Arabia, both of which I know a lot about, uh, to your point, um, really the subject of my first book is companies like Dow weren't competing against companies from those countries, we were competing against the country. So Dow was competing against China Inc. Saudi Arabia Inc., Japan Inc., countries that have top-down or autocratic models, even democracies like Singapore that operate in a quasi-democracy, quasi-capitalist model, really were top-down strategies. And it was an era in the United States, FDR and the like, that had industrial policy and policies that were set from the center. Those democratic models had evolved to this notion that a free market, Friedman, Basically, the market would set the rules, but in a steady-state model where technology innovation was in essence uh, predictable, fine. In a disruptive era, okay, the models are not predictable, you know, AI is a disruptor. Okay, um, taking CO2 out of the air, is a disruptor. Uh, looking at China and its growth now as the world's second largest economy, soon to be the world's largest, with its own ecosystem, is a disruptor. So in that model, okay, you now have to start to think through all these things that are basically saying, what's the government model for that era? And if, it's, if I elect politicians who aren't either educated on te- technology, digital, aren't on environment, are educated, then I'm relying on the bureaucracy. If I'm relying on the bureaucracy, who's working with the bureaucracy? The state agencies, the, the diff- different departments in government? Well, business better be. Business better be at the table helping the regulator set the smarter reg. Regulations are good if done right, if fact-based, and if think about the long term. In an autocratic system, that can be done. Now, of course, there's autocracies that aren't all that great, right? You don't want dictatorships. You want benevolent autocracies that think long term. Of course, in Western capitalism and Western democracies, that isn't happening anymore. Democracies and capitalism in the Western model are all short term. So that's where I say in the book, maybe what's going on is democracy and capitalism in the last century model is going through a divorce. That we need to now re-educate the society at large about how rules get set and that should be done by a new type of politician and that
0: should be done by a new type of interface between government and business. Okay. So, I want to come back to a number of those things. But what we've just covered now is the disruption that's in the title. But the yeah. subtitle of the book is a changemaker's guide to 21st century leadership. Now. Occurs to me that when you think about the the pantheon of CEOs of Fortune 100 companies, sort of leaving aside for a moment the the young ones running the uh, the Silicon Valley the companies, but but the, yeah. but the major American corporations, most of these people are in their 50s or 60s. They mm-hmm. came of age, thinking that this this ecosystem that had been created in the uh, post-war era by the united states and its allies what we kind of broadly refer to as globalization that was going to be the paradigm you were going to be operating in and your success or failure was going to be how you navigated that but we're going through something that no leader has ever gone through before all of this disruption simultaneously that you've pointed out geopolitical the role of the united states the rise of china climate change and the rise of alternative energy. And of course, the, uh, the disruption of technology, not just you know, new devices coming along and new vehicles and the like, but a fundamental reworking of the relationship between the institutions of power and and their, and their populations. And you, know, you say in the book, um, business leaders lack a toolbox for this century, um, which is sh- striking, considering we're almost a quarter of a way through it. Um, But talk about this a little bit. What is required then, in your view, of the modern CEO um, and leadership in companies more broadly, the boards and those who are going to inherit the CEO position, um, and are we preparing our leadership for this this new world environment you're talking about?
1: To to answer that question, a very detailed one that uh, I obviously cover a lot in the book, I can fling myself back to last century and imagine Post World War II, in particular, the booming era that that was created by innovation through World War II, post World War II, the return of the GIs, this whole notion of America—you know, building suburbs and building houses, and you know, everyone having affordable housing, affordable um, access to education—all that created a mantra of growth, 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 growth—that led to the corporation saying, "I can profit from that." Dow and uh, uh, this Madison Avenue, not far from here, uh, and Madman. You know, I don't know if you remember yeah, yeah, watching yeah. Madman. And uh, the era was perfect for companies like Dow, who were innovators, who would come and say, look, uh, the products we sell help modern society, help evolving modern society. That era of explosive growth created loads of jobs. And that whole era of handling this virtuous circle of capitalism was Fairly explainable because everyone wanted those jobs and the corporation was the place to enter. I entered a company where I entered at the bottom, climbed up through the ranks, participated in the wealth curve. Obviously, I got to the top, but many don't. Many get to the middle. It's still affordable housing, affordable education, affordable health care. Of course, 80s, 90s into the 00s, we lost the ability to spread that wealth evenly. Uh, When I say evenly, not like socialism. But absolutely for everyone to have access to education access to health care access to affordable housing we lost fiscal policy and went into an era of monetary policy the disease that we've all been suffering from the last 20 25 years is monetary policy has been the only answer to some very big topics of our time and i've mentioned a few of them housing and all that so then the financial it's an addictive a- drug an and the financial allocators Okay, the capital allocators in this town in New York City, plenty of them here, the banks, the, the ability to make money on money became a means to an end. And the ability then to make money on money was then to say to the corporation, I actually want you to make money so I can allocate the money somewhere else. Now that model okay, where market talks to market, in this case financial market, talks to, let's call it industrial market, meant that companies were under enormous pressure. I don't know if you remember Danny DeVito in the movie, you know, Easy Money, and where he went up to some paper mill uh, in New England somewhere and basically a family owned paper mill, that were employing people forever, and he basically said, well this is inefficient, throw out all management, throw out all workers, bring in automation, get rid of the jobs, community was ravaged. Okay? That model, of inequity started to appear in the corporate outcome. Now, the the big countermanding force in America, you've already mentioned it, was we are still a country of entrepreneurs, okay? Entrepreneurialism in the financial system, just mentioned it. Entrepreneurialism in the innovation system, Silicon Valley, the Boston Corridor, in biotech and and tech tech, we, we were great. But what happened is the great middle didn't participate in any of those models. Okay. The ones who went to the great universities participated in the entrepreneurial model. The ones that went to you know, the great universities, the Whartons and the, uh, you know, the um, Columbias and all that, participated in the top-end model, the financial services. The great middle hollowed out. Hollowed out access to education, access to health care, access to meaningful jobs. That inequality is what arrived because of monetary policy. So I've been thinking that through. My first book was really to try and bring back industrial policy, make it in America, to absolutely close the gap between this notion of offshoring because of labor cost and onshoring because of supply chains and technological innovation. The pandemic brought that home big time. So I would give President Biden a lot of credit because onshoring for value creating jobs in this country the three acts that were introduced, the infrastructure one, the CHIPS one, and the Inflation Reduction Act, have done that. Okay? That really is, in essence, trying to create the types of jobs in this country that means small, medium companies can actually have wealth growth and innovate and invest in R&D. We still haven't fixed the financial system in terms of capital allocation. Now, I'm only going through all of that to give you the background of why I think a new system is needed and I don't know what to call it. It's in the book, it's called Inclusive Capitalism. Uh, It's probably the wrong one. I don't have a better term. What it means is business redefines the ecosystem of business. New profit pools can be created from disruption. As I did at Dow, and I gotta tell you, it wasn't easy, but we did it. Risk the entire company against the disruption. In essence, to go from this platform of doing business to a platform of being an innovator in a complete new business you have to risk the entire enterprise to create a new total available market and new profit pool in environment and social factors there's disruption going on that you can actually benefit as a strategy and in the chapter on ESG I talk about that and how we should treat ESG as a business opportunity so what i'm really trying to articulate for you is reframe the model okay recreate the American corporate entrepreneur. Put in place policies that encourage that. Put in place standards that are modern standards, not last century standards. Try to educate regulators to get the better environmental and social standard. Work with them, get a different type of politician, and then a different type of CEO will emerge. Work on boards to try and get boards to support that type of management. In other words, fight off short-termism. I lay out all those lessons from my own experiences in the book. And chapter by chapter by chapter, I've done a very quick summary here for you.
0: I go through each of these. So let's go from the macro down to some brass tacks here. And imagine in a sense that you're entering the CEO position today rather than, you know, rather than two decades ago. Um, One of the great quotes in the book is actually not one of yours, it's actually another iconic American business leader, Lou Gerstner um, uh, from IBM, um, who said essentially that transformation begins with a sense of crisis or emergency, and no institution um, goes through fundamental change unless it believes that it is in deep trouble, um, in, in, in a sense. And so I'm wondering, you know, as you, As you enter into the C-suite or enter into the CEO's office itself, and you're trying to assemble this leadership team, the people who report to you and the board to get that sense of, you know of reinvention that you've just been talking about I mean I've watched a number of my colleagues flip through the book here um, and and everybody stops on the section where you endure the boardroom coup yeah. uh, a couple of years into your yeah. into your into your tenure and that's a it's a it's an episode that's worthy of an episode <laughs> of succession on the one hand but but the big but the big lesson was you know you need to surround yourself yeah. with people who believed in the vision and were on board with that but how do you remain open to the sort of the undetermined trajectory that we're on and not just be surrounded by the proverbial yes-men, uh, if you will. Yeah,
1: so you asked within that, you, you said in an earlier question, disruption, I'm a disruptor. Uh, maybe my whole genetic makeup made me that. Maybe my upbringing made me that. You know, I have an unusual upbringing up back Australia. Uh, in many ways, I often pinched myself along the way, how did I actually get to being interviewed by people like yourself on topics like this.
0: You have to come a long way.
1: You do come a long way by going to the edge and looking over, like Lou Gerstle was suggesting, yeah. and saying, there's an abbess there, or, flip your head, how do I build a bridge? And, and my mindset was always that way. I made the assumption early on, you refer to the boardroom coup, that the people around me that had built this great company were still like that. They weren't. I soon found out that the disruption the board wanted me to actually overcome, build the bridge, okay, the people around me who were the previous management and I'd kept them on were not ready for that type of disruption. Literally, they were not really ready to embrace the reality. So step number one to build that team, you've got to get everyone around you to embrace the reality and opt in or opt out. Step number two is build scenarios and build choices. Choice one, stay as is. Consequence of that is what, okay? Right. Uh, build that out. Step two, figure a way to move from where we are to where we need to get to in some time frame faster than the market. okay? Try and defy the naysayers, the people inside the company, the people on the board, people in investors by facts. Make the choice on scenarios. Step three, the most important, the one you just talked about, is build the team. Build the team based on another famous quote, not mine, Wayne Gretzky, where the puck is going, where the, not where the puck's coming from. Trying to, in this era, if I became CEO today, that is the hardest part of it. Where's the puck going? Whether you're involved in EVs, like I am, or whether you're involved in the transition of energy, like uh, I am with Saudi Aramco, whether you're involved in any of these massive technology shifts in digital, like I am at IBM, What we're coping with, in those companies I just mentioned, Lucid is the first one, is exactly that point, that there is so much around optionality and then on one side, you know, you can actually fail badly. On the other side, you can succeed. But boy, it's a high risk. Trading off the scenarios needs a team that is willing, absolutely, totally with the CEO and the board, absolutely articulate and willing to take that risk. In fact, risk management, experience-based risk management is I think what brought me to the table in the first place. I didn't realize that about myself, that I was willing all throughout my career to take fact-based risky decisions and then build a team around it. The last one is the one that I also think is embedded in the book. Take personal leadership on this, okay? It is all about you standing tall the other crisis i talk about in the book was the one where we almost bankrupted the dow because of the global financial crisis and the kuwaitis pulling out of the deal that i had when i was buying roman Haas. throughout that crisis i learned that everyone was looking at me for confidence strength resilience persistence did i have all the answers inside me no inside me i was worried sick inside me i was having sleepless nights it was really a tough time, but the price of the position is you can never, ever show that vulnerability to the organization around you. Over time, you build the team around you to handle that crisis in that moment, leading the, the, the ability to actually put the change in place. The big difference, what I just articulated over 15 years of CEO and today, if I became CEO, is how short cycle all that is. Embrace reality, build the scenario make build the team lead the change the team i had yesterday may not be the team i need tomorrow yeah. can i change people that fast in a corporation typically not people they companies typically think of their jobs as jobs for life passive resistance the middle management the clay layer my advice to current ceos of any size companies is never lose sight of the people in the front line and be with the troops at all times figure out who's in the front line generating revenue and or saving
0: cost and who's overhead and figure out why you need the overhead. So how do you then, one person whose job is not for life definitely is the CEO, right? I mean, 14 years as CEO of Dow, you'd be an anomaly today, right? I mean, the average CEO tenure is about three years, something like that. So how do you take everything that you've just said and then institutionalize it? And on the one hand, it's easy for a CEO to make pledges and promises on, you know, emissions and so on and so forth because it's not going to be realized by them. The next generation of leadership is the one who's going to actually have to fulfill uh, that promise in, 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 in a sense. So how do you, you know, how do you instill that then um, in the, as, as you said, you, in the book? You can't just sit down in front of the, your website and start listing what the company's values are. The yeah. values have to be more organic than that.
1: Yeah, and demonstrable by the CEO office. Look, um, reinvention of yourself in the job is a skill I learnt, and one that I would absolutely say has to be part of the persona and the character of any leader, CEO in particular. You actually have to have the ability to step out of yourself, look around, and see what's going on, and then change yourself. I count at least six times when I became a different CEO based on what was going on around me. That reinvention of oneself is not easy to do. We are institutionalized as people. We develop habits. We develop routines. We develop certainties in our day. Throw all that out. Throw all that out. In fact, in my act two, I've tried to mimic it in my new life in that I love the ability To absolutely, totally assess something in that moment and decide whether it's the right thing to do or not, in, out, in, out. That ability, almost like an accordion, to actually move yourself around what needs to be done is an agility that is embedded in today's character set for leadership that frankly is not embedded in society at large. In fact, most people, to use the expression, right, don't want their cheese moved. I mean, fundamentally, people like constancy and stability. Mm -hmm. It's it's the way we're built. We love our routines. This is not a world anymore where that is absolutely, totally going to occur. Social media alone has disrupted us all, okay? Media has disrupted us all. There is breaking news every moment to the point where you don't even know what breaking news is. We're all suffering from ADD, yet it is totally a tumultuous time. No wonder young people are starting to say, well, where do I go to build a career? How do I actually create an ecosystem of some constancy of purpose? And I think this ability to do it as a CEO and still show confidence and direction, North Star, your values, your North Star, but pivot according to the moment is something I learned along the way. And frankly, I have examples in the book where I talk about that, where I had to be a different type of CEO. The global financial crisis, where we almost bankrupted the company, I went to our board and basically said, here's the deal. I got us into this mess. Okay? Give me 90 days, I'll get us out. Did I know I could get us out in 90 days? No. But did I have the passion and energy and the absolute drive to create the fix? It wasn't my doing. I didn't create the GFC. I didn't create the circumstances that led Kuwait to withdraw on us. I didn't time the acquisition to time with the GFC. I didn't do any of that deliberately. Of course you wouldn't. But I did it on my watch. That accountability model and the commitment to change yourself to get to the better answer is, I think, something that I think every leader now needs to have in their repertoire. I think too often we have examples where people don't do that. People absolutely say this is a platform where I want to do things the way I have used to do them. And you see that in the body politic, right? The problem we now have in the body politic, in your specialty of geopolitics, is absolutely we have people who think that their platforms of society are what got them elected in the first place. And they base themselves on model. In fact, you asked about Saudi Arabia and China. The reason they work is they've totally gotten rid of all competition. And they're the only person in charge, which now means I get certainty of leadership, but then I have no certainty of what happens if that fails. Right. Okay? And that's the problem. So you've got to have corporations like ours. I talk about enlightened boards. I talk about CEOs and new types of leadership skills. That combination means agility on top of resiliency and persistence.
0: We started this conversation talking about this absolute disruption in the macro um, in, mm-hmm. environment. And you're, you make this, you, 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 you use the analogy of watching where the puck is going, go to where the puck is going. is going. So the onus then is on that CEO or boards or others, other leaderships to have a clear eyed view of where that world is going, unencumbered by institutional bias that obviously sets in uh, with long standing companies. And also the selection bias of highly networked CEOs who speak to political leaders all the time, but those people are sometimes underinformed or behind the puck or have a very different set of objectives than you do. So how do you maintain that clear-eyed focus um, and, and control for the bias that inevitably sets in? Yeah, so institutions,
1: governmental business that are stuck Lou Gersten's comment in terms of complacency are doomed to disappear, and the unraveling. Let's let's call it the portfolio model, conglomerate model, which we all celebrated in the last 20 years, the last century, uh, caused GE to go through a massive, you know, reorganization. Right, Honeywell, the same, Allied Signal, the same, uh, Dupont, Dow, all of us. So, so what what happened there? That one leader too many said, I can't take the risk on changing institutional muscle memory. It's much easier to keep the increment of cash coming until such time as it blows up. Okay? IBM blew up. When Gerstner came, he saved it basically. Dow was blowing up on me, but we were making more money than ever before. Now what? Dow was blowing up, or we were making more money than ever before? Well, The analytics showed what was happening we were making money off inventions from 20, 30 years ago. We'd stopped innovating. The next thing that would happen to make money was not there. Clay Christensen and the innovators dilemma is totally that. So what I do believe in is how to create the disruption inside the institution to absolutely cause the institution to reinvent itself. If I'm small, a small, small company, a startup, a founder, by definition, you're doing it. The mediums to the largest, much harder to do it. The transformation at Dow that we undertook, I would tell you it was the hardest thing. If I had known how hard it would be, I mean, even as someone like me who's a risk taker, a disruptor, I might, if I'd known what I knew later, I might not even have tried it. It's that hard. It's a wholesale change of the culture of the place one person at a time. So how do you do it? You basically have to make a decision. On my watch, should I be CEO for 3.8 years and make a lot of money okay. or should I make the case that the company needs to change and I will stick around to see the outcome and I'll take the up and down of it. And if it doesn't work, fire me. If it does work, I will keep working on making the changes that create the institutional change short long-term trade there Kevin
0: very hard to do let me let me come at that question from a slightly different angle yeah why do you think so many in late 2021 early 2022 the U.S. government to an unprecedented degree declassified intelligence that Russia was going to invade Ukraine on February 24th 2022 a great number of American companies were completely caught blindsided they were told it was going to happen and they did not prepare for it, why? So the triangle called business government society
1: is being redefined as we speak. Government and government information and government interfaces by the business community have broken down on trust. Trust of information, who's in the in, who's not in the in, is something that needs to be remade. I do believe that business public-private partnership models that you talked about in autocracies work well because business is involved in setting government strategy. We're not involved in setting government strategy, especially in the cyber defense type. and We're brought in very late. I think that's where a model change is required, to rebuild trust. I, I When I was CEO, the best example of that was how we were doing the strategic and economic dialogue with China uh, under Hank Paulson. And, um, Uh, Secretary of State, I think Condoleezza Rice at the time, Uh, but certainly Hank Paulson brought in business and took us to China and had us engage as an equal partner to government in the business to government dialogue. I think that model needs to be rebuilt. I think President Biden is doing that more than than ever. Uh, We are getting asked to come in and comment on things that matter, especially as it relates to cyber strategies and AI strategies but I think there could be more to be had for that. Notice the business community is also changing. The BRT two years ago made their statement on shareholder and stakeholder capitalism and purpose-based business. They basically are saying, hey, we realize we have a bigger role here, so please invite us in so we can help you build trust on things like education, healthcare, affordable housing, and better policies. And the part that I think is still yet to come, and I talk about it in the book, is how we do digital and AI. I think that part of it needs a much better relationship based on trust between business and government.
0: I think that is not what's happened yet. I wanna come back to that, but you just brought up China, and I know that when you were chairman of the US-China Business Council, yeah. you met on a number of occasions with Xi Jinping, who I yeah. believe was vice premier at, yes. the, uh, yes. at the time. What are your what are your observations of him and do you think that corporate America is have, taking too simplistic of an approach to China or is it is it as nuanced and 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 you know multi-dimensional as it needs to to be. Um, I make
1: my next statements as a sign as somebody who spent a big part of their career in Asia on the doorstep of China in Hong Kong. Someone who admires the opening up under Deng Xiaoping and Continued under, you know, Jiang Xiaoming and Hu Jintao, and frankly, got to know a lot of the Chinese leadership up close and personal, including uh, Xi Jinping. In these early days, um, the toggle that's occurred is been exacerbated by both sides of the divide, the U.S. side and the China side. The symbiotic relationship of you're our market, we'll be your producer, we'll take the money we make, put it into T-bonds that is now being broken and will continue to break. China is making all the signs in the world that it's a rival as its own uh, business ecosystem, geographic ecosystem, nationalism, its own boundary conditions, its own friends and allies, its own bank. All these things is what I think now leads me to the conclusion, and I say it in the book, that US companies have to recraft their strategies completely. And not look upon it as what we had as recent as five, ten years ago. What is in essence going on under Xi Jinping is a realization. Actually, it's history. It's a return to what China was before the West reduced it to a colonial outpost and, you know, trade in opium and the like. Um, the reascendancy of China as a country and as a culture of significance in the world, and we don't need anything from the West, has arrived. And that means that as a global company, we have to decide as companies what we actually do in China in terms of being a Chinese company in China. Not an American company in China, a local or Chinese company in China. That is a completely different mindset and the means leads to to my conclusion, which is we have to become transactional rather than strategic. I want to access the market, I might import products in the market. I may make those products in the market, I'll sell them in the market, and I'll do it not on my best available technology. I'll do it because I'm selling inside a competitive system, not a cooperation system. That system, over years, has been stealing our technology, over years has become more and more sophisticated, and over years has become a significant producer of what I do. So it's become a competitor. It's my first book, China Inc. and its companies now are technologically advanced and are exercising their own muscle. So go in with Wise Wide Open and establish a strategy that says I want to do it on that basis, but I cannot go do it on the basis that I had as recent as 10 years ago, where I could go in and dominate the market as the only provider of that technology or that
0: product. So go back for one second, because yeah. you just said something, and I don't want to let it get lost here, because it's one of the most interesting questions you bring up in the yeah. book, which is that do um, that american ceos and leaders and companies and their shareholders need to ask this question yeah. are you an american company that yeah. operates globally right. or are you a global company that happens to be headquartered in the united states yeah. talk about that distinct what do you mean by, by so
1: that? the great american multinational of which dow was one born in the 60s based on this notion that i'm exporting american values Not unlike American existentialism, right? The geography model went into the corporation. The corporation was the multinational. The multinational was export the American way. Go to markets, establish yourself in the market as an American company. My definition of globality is the sum of all those parts in all those countries. I grew up in Dow, Australia, went to Dow, Hong Kong, went to Dow, China, went to Dow, uh, Thailand, went to Dow, USA. It was always Dow. The value system of Dao was there in all those countries and all those Mm -hmm. cultures. I did not have to, okay, really think much about what it meant to be a Thai company in Thailand. Okay, regionalization or even localization was really subsumed by globalization. I could be a global company with headquarters in the United States. Not anymore. Not anymore. I now have to accept that globalization, as defined. By exporting standards and values is being redefined by country ecosystems changing the rules of how to play away and if I choose to play away today okay am I a US company playing away and redefining myself in those countries in a different model or am I still trying to be a global company by the sum of my parts including those other models okay that Dow Saudi Arabia and Dow USA can coexist, and what's my platform for coexistence? It isn't making money. It's absolutely, totally that I recognize the culture and the values as the same, but I accept that the joint venture I have to have in Saudi Arabia is very different than how I operate in Japan. And I think that notion is what we used to have, but now is going to be brought back in spades by what I say in the book is the new globalization which is regionalization,
0: regionalization of countries with shared values. Okay, so, so square this circle then for yeah, me, yeah. because I think anybody who's been listening to this conversation all along will not be surprised by this, but, yeah. but perhaps if they're picking up the book for the first time, they might, that your very first chapter is actually all about ESG and the doubling down on, on ESG in an environment where it's sort of become, well, it's a three-letter word, but it's sort of become a four-letter word, um, Larry Fink has been de- demonized for championing it as an example. Um, it's become very politicized. Yeah. Um, and yet you're doubling down on it in the very first chapter of the book and on inclusive capitalism, which you've been talking about all along. Yeah. But as you are trying mm-hmm. to, to perform in the environment that you've just talked about yeah. um, with in some countries where a lot of the values enshrined in what we think of as ESG aren't championed in the same way that they are here, let's say. Um, how do you then square that circle? So, I start with
1: the ESG topic because actually it's serendipitous. Uh, two years after I first started writing the book, two years later the topic, has, as you, you just said, amplified to pro and anti, and even the way you frame your question as if it's one thing. So, what I thought two years ago is more than relevant right now. It isn't one thing, it's three very different things and you know, our add bus society likes acronyms and likes to convert everything to simplicity. Well, this is not simplicity. This is absolutely the social license to operate and every single one of those verticals, E, S and G, have different parameters to answer your square the circle question. On E, E is very much all about sustainability where the boundary condition is the planet, not the plant fence, not the building. That difference in mindset that 9 billion people by 2050 on this planet is not sustainable unless we intervene with policy and technology and not in that necessarily in that order okay technology and policy that that conversation is the responsibility of those that operate on the planet and if you operate on the planet and you are a company of size scale and substance you can actually make it very profitable You can absolutely be the standard bearer, the standard setter, the regulation setter with governments around the world that says CO2-free technologies are the standard. Uh, Carbon capture and storage and hydrogen are the standard. I can go on and on in the energy transition, but not just energy. It could be water, it could be air, it could be all the things that we care about on the planet. That is a new standard that we have to now get into the doing part, not the, I say, the five Ds in the book, You know, I say denial, defiance, debate, dialogue. We've got to get to the doing part. Everyone is ready for that. We are frankly, as corporations, very ready to make sustainability the driver of strategy to set new profit pools. That's E, and by the way, everyone wins. Society wins. The companies that invest in it and innovate win. People who are innovators and technology entrepreneurs win governments win because they obviously they make take better better care of their citizens and and frankly hard to find a loser but we've all got to agree on what that standard is so people have to take a lead in that s is a very different driver and in fact probably the most unattended driver since women got the vote we are sitting here in an inequality in a society that's unequal and beginning the remedy finally okay and basically saying no one should be treated any different because of what, how they look, where they come from, their gender, their sexual preferences. Inclusiveness is absolutely a social paradigm. But what does it mean in reality? It means equal access. Okay, It means equal opportunity. And what better mantra to do that from, from a corporation? Corporations doubt we operate to those standards. Now, hold us to account. Put in place the... Systems and the regulations to make sure that women don't get less pay for the same job as men. Okay, we have inequality that's perverse because we basically haven't come up with the systems to track and, and put in place the remedies. So that's S. S is much bigger than that, but that's the big topic in S that I have in the book. And G is the one that we confuse to the gazoo. Okay, a G. There's a there's a big G and a little G. Okay, a big G, big governance systems. Is frankly recrafting all the institutions of this century. The irrelevancy of institutions we created post World War II is stuck. Okay, now to get that one done, that book ain't gonna solve it. I don't think there's too many ways we're gonna solve this other than figuring a way to get countries to work together in, in one planetary system. We've tried it with climate change, we're trying it with G20s and G7s. I don't have any fixes for that other than to make the observation that neither me nor Larry Fink are going to solve big G. Little g we can work on a lot and in fact now relates back to S and to E. Little g is are we exercising our fiduciary control governance that we have in our supply chains equality? No prison labor, no child labor, not dealing with countries that don't have first world standards. And if we are How do we know, okay? And how do we secure our supply chains so we do the right thing in our entire ecosystem and how do we be held to account? That's little g. Little g is also how we govern ourselves. What type of board should we have in today's era? And I have a whole chapter on that. And little g is its own fix. So why why am I going through this detailed answer to what is in essence a a very critical question as chapter one? is I just don't think anyone's put the debate into the terms it should be on. And we are one more time trying to make it, you know, like a reaction to a fad, you know, anti-wokism, pro ESG, anti-ESG. Society unfortunately is simplifying three very important and critical topics. I put it on our policymakers, our elected representatives, and I put it on our business community to absolutely change the debate. And I know there's a lot of CEOs out there who are trying to do it. And I think we've just got to basically get together and make this change
0: happen, frankly, for the good of all those three things. So, Andrew, you've alluded a couple of times in our conversation um, about this public-private partnership, um, both in more authoritarian regimes as well as in democracies. But I want to focus more on, say, the U.S. in particular for, for, for a moment about what's the, what's the right balance. In a way, we have seen governments around the world come back with a vengeance, particularly through, uh, through COVID, um, uh, and they have reasserted themselves in a pretty significant fashion. Um, but, you know, we've also seen some real successes uh, in that Operation Warp Speed that brought the uh, mRNA uh, vaccines to the table. Um, one could make the argument NASA and SpaceX and being able to commercialize um, a lot of uh, a lot of space development. Um, you've already referenced the IRA and the Chips Act and the infrastructure uh, infrastructure bill, um, and you know we are starting to see perhaps the innovators in artificial intelligence trying to get government to get ahead of the uh, ahead of the technology questions that are going to be raised. Um, and not put ourselves into that box that we got into with social media where everybody just saw the positives and nobody saw the negative externalities until it was way too, way too late. On the other hand, we see CEOs get hauled up in front of Congress all the time, where it becomes very clear that elected officials have not only no idea about the technology, they have no idea about the business models. And so how, you know, so what's the right balance between government and, and, and business from both a regulatory perspective, but also in terms of the incentivizing um, to, to go in a certain direction. So I,
1: I reference my lived experience with Business Roundtable and Business Council and National Association of Manufacturers, U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Where, where it works best is when CEOs lift themselves out of their companies and their sectors and do uh, cross-sectorial policies and then go into Capitol Hill, go to the executive branch and speak the book of why society will benefit and therefore they themselves can be a part of the solution on regulating AI. Okay, That works, that's the public-private partnership model at its best. Take it one more step and I was privileged under three presidencies to be part of committees where the government then sets up these committees which are advisory groups that basically are the relevant state agency or the relevant um, uh, cabinet secretary, with uh, business people who are very cross sectoral and come up with answers to U.S. apprenticeships, or you know, come up with answers to manufacturing policy and regulations. Uh, that is, in essence, I, I say in my first book, the Singapore EDB model. Okay, where in that case they actually create a board, an official board that absolutely institutionalizes how to take. Private sector knowledge, the regulatee, with public sector um, uh, activity, the regulator, and come up with a better long range policy. For me, that's best practice. If we can create agencies like that, we, we did create under President Obama uh, Select USA as a good example of that, which is a one stop shop approach to commerce in the United States. In other words, inbound FDI, go one place, Select USA public and private sector people sit there and help advise foreign companies on how to actually site select, where to find the right partner, what sorts of human capital do they need, etc. If we can institutionalize that sort of model, it sort of lost its way for a while uh, when we basically, you know, especially under the Trump era, we basically said we're not going to deal foreign jurisdictions anymore, we're going to be only USA that confused the business community a lot because the business community was work you know used to an american model that operated globally and as i indicated in an earlier question maybe that model needs to be revisited anyway given onshoring of supply chains and what happened with the pandemic i think the business community is ready to participate in a model that has what i call public private partnerships as its centerpiece and that's actually something that i think the business community through the various associations would do on the flip side, where lawmakers and, and legislators really don't trust the business community and why lots of these congressional committees occur is do we actually undertake compliance? Okay, Are we in fact fair and do we exercise against compliance? And secondarily, how do we use interest groups and lobbying? And I actually say in the book, we should dispense with lobbying, we should dispense with interest groups. In other words, we should take he who has he or she has the deepest pockets shouldn't influence who who the regulator or legislator sees and listens to because it breaks down trust in the system that is on the negative side of the conversation do you need to do both probably okay because in essence influence and interest groups build mistrust if i speak my book and only my book and I spend money lobbying my book, then why should I be part of the solution that benefits everyone's book and everyone's society? It comes back to one of your earlier questions. The CEO has to recognize that they can't just speak their book. They actually have to be pro-country, pro-policy, pro-sector, pro-company. Capitalism flips it pro company, pro sector, pro policy, pro country. This is the dilemma and why I speak to, frankly, the 21st century. Society is demanding the first model, not the second model. How can I make a profit in the short term while putting in place the policies for the long term? I'd like to think I was one of the CEOs that was willing to take that risk. It didn't engender popularity for me in the financial community. The financial community saw me as somebody who wanted to spend money for a return that wouldn't happen while they owned the stock. That's the breakdown and that's why I talk about inclusive capitalism.
0: How do you, though, make that reality in Washington as well? I mean, look, we've got some absolutely phenomenal talent. Um, in, in Washington and in government agencies. They are sort of derided as the deep state now, but they are some of the most dedicated public servants that we, uh, that we have. But the elected officials, you know, do, are, are infected with a lot of short-termism. There is a very, very, you know, and it's not, it's not any one's fault, right? I mean, there is the imperative of a two-year congressional election cycle that basically begins the day after the, uh, the, the last election. In an environment where, um, you know, in a lot of the autocratic states that you've been talking about, um, a lot of the A-team is really going to Beijing, A-team is going to Riyadh and Jeddah, right, even in Russia, right, um, not those making the decisions to go to war, but quite frankly, the surprisingly resilient performance of the Russian economy has been thanks to a lot of very actually capable technocratic economic leaders, not least the central bank governor. So. You know, how do we get Washington, how do we get public service and elect, you know, and, and, and even elected officials to put country first again?
1: Yeah, so uh, I say there's about half a dozen items in the book which are on the radical side. One of the ones is that, where I absolutely speak to secondment. I say we should second end of career people or young people should be seconded into government and the other way around. Bureaucrats should be seconded back into private sector that we should have a program of doing that so that people can walk in each other's shoes and understand.
0: But to be fair we've had that right I mean I mean it used to be derided Goldman Sachs had a revolving door of people going in and out of government and that yeah. was seen as bad.
1: Yeah so I'm basically I'm saying make the cultural shift yeah. to be seen as good now yeah. Goldman Sachs you know I, I could actually many of the things I talk about in the book I could find half a dozen companies doing them but we're trying to make it systemic. I mean, if I had to go back, the final chapter in the book is a promise or an optimism to make things systemic. The reason the book is written, the very first question you ask me is why? Because I, need, I wanted thought-provoking systemic changes, okay? not rifle shot, try one thing. I'm trying to start a conversation where smarter people than me can come on top of it and answer questions that you just asked. For example, how do we make a system fix to this? How do we absolutely? you're right. Incredibly talented people in public servants. But, you know, did you ever see the show Yes Minister, the British show? Yeah, sure. I mean, it speaks to your point, right? Yeah. You know, I'll just say what that minister wants to placate, I'll do anything, I'll do what the right thing is anyway. I have some experience right now with my Brisbane Olympics job. I'm dealing with state bureaucrats who are incredibly talented, but their political leaders have a different agenda, which is to get reelected next cycle. How do you balance do the right thing? versus do what the short term is saying. This is, I think, only gonna be fixed through a system fix of human capital exchange. I'd like to think of mandatory service. So I retire at age 60 something, okay? We all go and do two years of government service somewhere. Or I'm a 22, 25, 28 year old. Um, We will allow that person to go run for mayor of the local community or, or whatever, position in the local council. Really force people to understand the governments weren't created to have a lived bureaucracy. Governments were created and bureaucracies were created to absolutely serve people with the right thing to do for country. Okay, The politicization of the country shouldn't be the politicization of the bureaucracy and the people trying to do the right thing by the country. Same with companies. By the way, one of the reasons American companies work so well is in the main they've stayed bipartisan. I mean, we position neither side of the aisle. We position, where do we position? The center, what's the center? The center's for country. And frankly, that is my training. I mean, running Dow, I had to work with both sides and no more stark example than working for President Obama, than working for President Trump, right? I mean, you had to find a way to make it work in the context of what the politics of the moment were. So yes, we've got to help a system fix with the bureaucrats.
0: And you make the point in the book that Business as an institution has enjoys higher trust from the American people than our institutions and of the government, increasingly. Right. and increasingly so. So, I want to end with you know at the end of your book, you ask the audience, you ask the reader to go through kind of a thought exercise, projecting forward, um, you know, 50 years, and how business is going to fit into that. And as I read your thoughts, I was struck in a couple of different ways. One you know, um, all of the power um, and, and uh, sort of democratizing force that technology, as an example, uh, potentially affords us. Um, but there's a downside to, to a lot of these technological developments as we have, have seen the ability of governments to spread disinformation um, or people themselves to spread disinformation, uh, to divide and conquer Uh, to surveil, um, to control essentially. So, it could be utopian or it could be dystopia. So, how did you settle uh, as you ended this?
1: Yeah, I I settled um, with sort of the intersection comment that I made at the beginning which I said was divergence and disruption to convergence and optimism. Uh, And so, again, that's one person's view. That's one person's observation. You write this whole book and you say, so what? Where are we all going? And I settled on optimism and convergence with the notion that the marriage of digital and biology, we will see that regulating AI and technology is going to be very mandatory and necessary, that by doing it and doing it well, which I'm optimistic, based on public-private partnerships and you know the parts of society that understand it work with the parts of society that have to govern it and hopefully there's a lot of overlap there in terms of subject matter expertise that we develop in fact uh, opportunities and profit pools that absolutely help society go to this better place and this better place is a carbon free environment obviously Uh, we all have to work less because we're redefining work and that's a whole topic in its own right, that in this extra hours we get, what do we do? We enjoy leisure and we absolutely enjoy experiences and we consume and spend money in those experiences and therefore I use the word happy and this may sound utopian, it definitely is, but we only get to that spot by corralling the technology and managing it for that. Profit pools will be created, one of the obvious ones right now, we're moving from uh, internal combustion engines to EVs. Very tough technological change, but on the other side of it, massive new profit pools and real new innovation to occur out of electrification as an example of a disruptor that leads to an opportunity. So I go to go to where the puck is, go to the skills, and go to that spot of the conversation. And then I sort of try to wrap it all up by saying, look, this... This is a time of change that technology has brought us something that is unimaginable and cell phones were unimaginable, 20 smartphones 20 years ago, cell phones 30 years ago, uh, the production line of the automobile 100 years ago, but it's, it's bigger than that. We're at the S-curve. Therefore, to corral it and make it positive is absolutely, totally the only opportunity to absolutely participate as a company, as a corporation, and I end on that point. The profit pools that will come from that, by thinking long-term and being on top of that disruption and converging and being an innovator, will overwhelm any notion that the short-term opportunism is the
0: way to go. Andrew Liveris' new book is Leading Through Disruption. Andrew, thanks so much for for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, thank you. So there you have it. I'm Kevin Kachawara. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Teneo Insights. If you have any questions about any of the topics we cover, please reach out to us at teneoinsights at teneo.com. See you next time.